um, for many of you who have been here for the last seven years, six years, you have probably gone through the series that we have continued to go through this fall. Every fall we go through a sermon series that engages uh, the, the concepts of gather, grow, and go. And one thing we are keying on is that it's not a linear progression. You don't do this to do this to this, but they feed into each other in a way that um, causes us to be people of delight, causes us to be people faithful to God, and ultimately to live the Christian life well. And you know, this year, we're engaging through the book of the Psalms, which we want to remember is a book that is a corporate prayer book. It's a book of worship. It's a book of reflection, of prayer. And sometimes as we go through this, we've gone through the narratives of Christ. He's one who gathers, right? His disciples, they grow, he equips, and they go. They're sent to places. But if you try and find that in the Psalms, it looks a little different. And so last week, as we reflected on what growing in Christ looks like, we were in Psalm 1, and we looked at that idea. We had this question. What streams are you planted by? And what streams are you allowing to shape your life? You know, in Psalm 1, um, we have this verse where it talks about, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. And sometimes when we think of that, we think about that verse telling us that there are all individual trees planted by one stream. So, you know, Andi, she's a tree. Alicia, she's a tree. And we're all on the bank growing as we see God. But notice the psalm invites us to a different kind of image. We are like a tree planted by streams of water. It flips the way we typically imagine this psalm working on us, which is important for us as we think about the ways that we allow streams to, infor to inform our lives. What streams are we allowing to shape our lives? I won't rehash the whole sermon. If you'd like to revisit it, you can catch it online, on the website, YouTube, Facebook, all those places. But building on this first psalm that causes us to confront what we choose to stream into our lives, our psalm this week presses us a bit more in reflection. Uh, again, we've said it a few times, but the, psalm, the psalms, they are a book of corporate worship and prayer. The Psalms are meant to be engaged within community. And this holds true for Christians and also for Jews alike. This is, you know, a worship book that's meant to be read in community. And so, as a prayer book, as something that engages us in this way, in worship, I want us to pay attention a little bit to the structure of the book of the Psalms. Did you know that there are five books in the Psalms. So Psalms is broken into book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. The passage we're reading today sits in book five. And depending on your interpretation of why that happens, it could be that these five prayer books in the church are meant to mimic the Torah, the five books for the Hebrew scriptures. Right? So you have one book of worship in the Psalm for every book of worship that exists in the Torah, in the law, in the teaching of God. Our passage today, Psalm 119, it sits within this last book. And get this, this psalm is very long. 
Psalm 119 is very long. Uh, in your bulletin, you'll note there, the, the second reference, verse 169 to 72 or uh, 76 or whatever that last one is, um, that is, you know, not a chapter. Those are other verses. So we're going to read 16 verses from this psalm today. There's 160 we're not going to read, because if I read it, it's going to take about 20 minutes to just read the, the whole psalm. But in Hebrew, like the beauty and intent of this psalm, it comes to life when we recognize that this psalm is an acrostic poem. So for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 of them, there's eight verses that are written under each letter, and every line in Hebrew, all the verses, begin with the letter that it represents. So right away, like in English, that doesn't necessarily communicate well, but in Hebrew, this is a work of art. It's inviting us as art to engage God in different ways. See, this isn't an ordinary psalm. When we recognize the form, the beauty of the psalm starts to come to life. It's not just a jumble of words or prayers that are compiled. There's intent with every letter, every element. This is a poem of worship that aims to invite us as worshipers to encounter God in every element of language, in every section, in every verse, in every word, in every letter. It's fitting for the moment we've just experienced, not in a hurry. See God in every letter. God is being revealed in every piece of this psalm, and this is what the psalm is trying to do. It's inviting us to see God present in every aspect of the poem, and like any good expression of art, this causes us to re-examine every aspect of our lives and our life together. So that's a lot of background info on the psalm, I know that. If we were in a classroom, there's more structural things we could explore. But here's the rub. Here's where things kind of center in. This is why we've explored so much of the background for this book before we've even engaged it. On its most basic level, I love how this psalm invites us to pay attention. It invites us to pay attention. In a sermon where our theme is focused on going, now the posture that we're invited to take up as this psalm works on us, as we let the psalm read us. As we go, as we leave here every week, we hope as leaders in this faith community that we are all being formed in a way that makes us more aware of God's presence that exists outside these walls. That's a hope we have, that we are more aware of God's presence in our communities, in our relationships, in the things outside of these walls. As we gather, we grow, we go, we want to take up a posture of expectant alertness to the ways that God is present in our world. And so if you are want to take notes, as we gather, grow, and go, we are called to pay attention to God's presence in our world. As we gather, grow, and go, we are called to pay attention to God's presence in our world. Said differently, this is uh, the words of theologian and semiotician Len Sweet. He says, we live 
in an attention deficit culture, more adept at gaining attention than paying attention. So, furiously, we, we uh, explore the world that advance our interests while not paying attention to the burning bushes of God that showcase God's activity. I love that, right? That way he hits on the pulse for us. We're really good at uh, gaining attention. We're not so good at paying attention. In Christian community, sometimes we can fall into the temptation of thinking that we are the saviors of the world. But in truth, everything we explore, uh, this thread isn't true. We are not the saviors of the world. That's God. We aren't called to be saviors. Instead, we're called to be stewards. Stewards in the world. We are not the saviors of the world. We're called to think of the earliest depiction. Tend to gardens. Think about Peter's life. We are called to feed the lambs. Feed sheep. If you, were during, if you were with us during our summer series, when we looked at 1 Peter, we explored this a little bit more. We're called to steward creation, steward the world. When we talk about going into the world, our task is a task of co-laboring with God. It's not a task of conquest or conquering the world for God. Instead, when Moses is in the wilderness and he encounters God in a burning bush— He's told to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Do we remember this story? Right. Remove your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Every, every wilderness has flickers of fire that God calls holy. So the tasks of Christians is to notice the fires around us and respond to the life God is sustaining, even when the landscapes look barren. As we gather, grow, and go, we are called to pay attention to God's presence in our world. If we don't do this, we will miss the opportunities that God is calling us into, inviting us into. Our passage this, echo, this, this morning, it echoes uh, this theological posture. So let's actually look at the psalm now. All right. If you would, take a look at Psalm 119, and we're going to read the first eight verses, so the first letter of the alphabet, and then the last eight verses, the last letter of the alphabet. Here we go, verse 1. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, and oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. And then to the bottom, the next eight verses for the ending of the chapter. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, 
for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a sheep, lost. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. How does this passage speak to the Christian call to go? How does this happen? We know that the very structure of this psalm invites us into a posture of paying attention, right? Like, it's made, it's designed this way to cause us to pay attention, to find God in everything. Nothing too big, nothing too small. Even in the letters, God is there. I want you to think about the shift in tone that happens from the first letter of this psalm to the last one. Did you catch what happened when we were reading? In this psalm, the disposition of the author changes from a reliance on self to a reliance on God that is instructive for us as we gather, grow, and go. Look at this closely. In the first verses of this psalm, the author describes what a faithful believer should look like. So, again, this first thing begins, blessed are those who are blameless. Right? He's, he's describing what faithful walk looks like. Blessed are those who keep the statutes. They do no wrong, but they follow his ways. And then the author confidently says, like, that's me. That's what I do. Like, I will praise you with an upright heart. As I learn your righteous laws, I will obey your decrees. He describes, this is what I'm going to do. If this is the image of what faithfulness looks like, this is what I'm going to do. Starts that way. But then as we get to the last verses of the book, you've now gone through the entire alphabet. Notice the different shift in tone. Rather than the author saying, the author saying what they are going to do for God, these last verses begin with a plea to God to empower the author to live rightly. In this shift, it's subtle, but it's hugely important, right? It's a picture of vulnerability. It breaks any notion of our gathering, our growing, our going, being something we do to appease God. Right? Instead, the shift in disposition here is an embodied call to humility. Not humility defined as like downplaying, or thinking less of yourself, not humility defined that way. God doesn't need us to be useless so that God can feel powerful. It doesn't have to exist that way. In the words that have been attributed to C.S. Lewis, he talks about how humility is not thinking less of ourselves, lowering ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Right? Not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. It's the direction, the posture that we're living in. Humility is that. And this is our second point for the day. You know, first one, as we gather, grow, and go, we are called to pay attention to God's presence in our world. And then, as we gather, grow, and go, we're called to go into the world with a disposition of humility. We are called to go into the world with a disposition of humility. The Christian, faith, the, the, the Christian faith, it's not meant to form us into exclusivity, 
It's not meant to do that. When we practice it faithfully, our tolerance for difference grows. Our tolerance for difference is enhanced. Think of it this way. We are a interdenominational church. Jack is ordained Presbyterian. Uh, I am ordained in a Pentecostal denomination in the southern United States. I grew up in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. You can't get very, like, those are very different worlds, theologically, right? <laughs> those are unique spaces. And, you know, in our gathering, it's important for us to worship with people. Theological difference, the way we inhabit the world in difference, People who vote differently, I can't vote, so I'm not in that conversation. But all y'all, I mean, you can vote in your own ways. Uh, people who look different than us, who have different experiences, experiences with Christianity that are different. I grew up three, four days a week in church. That's not the experience for everyone in this community. So there's even an engagement with what church and faith and spirituality looks like. The difference here in differences of experience, is also present in who God's heart, or who, how we articulate God's heart for the world, right? How we see the world. So if we think about why we do these heritage months, why we focus on them at all, like isn't the gospel universal? Isn't God's truth universal? Well, we want to engage the different ways that God is expressed through culture. Expressed in culture. And so we recognize, like, the global Christian faith is much broader than the subset we live in in Seattle. Again, if we were to look at a graph, we've done this sometimes, and maybe we'll do it next week. We could look at a pie graph of Christianity filtered into 100 people. 23 of those people are going to be speaking Spanish if they identify as Christian on the global scale. 20 or less are going to speak English. Right? And then that's only 45% of the global Christian faith. And so when we start looking at it this way, right, where you live, how you live, we start to recognize that if we think geographically, we have about 23-24% of the Christian world is split between Europe and North America. In just South America alone, there's 27% of the global Christian faith. So, when we say this, if we have never learned the expression of faith present through Spanish speakers, we are missing a broad expression of global Christian faith right now. That's not even talking about history. That's Stats live from 2020. And so we think about this. What difference are we allowing? What, for, what streams are we allowing to inform our life and our life together? A value for us in our gathering is to be people who have a disposition to engage God in everything and then also to engage God in our lives pointing outwards to the world around us. A disposition of humility and also an attention to God's presence around us. This is a good thing. It really is. As I was um, in Cambridge this past summer, I was uh, doing some doctoral work, and 
we went to one of these chapels in Cambridge College. It's not necessarily a church, so the history with it is a little strange. Uh, some would call it a, uh, an homage to the Tudors, if you're part of, uh, if you know that part of English history. So there's like the, the rows all over the place, and some would say it's closer to veneration of that family or that tribe rather than God in God's self. But I want to show some pictures of the chapel because the chapel itself, I think, hits on a key thing for us as we think about faith and religion. If we look at these images of the chapel, the stained glass and the vaulted ceilings, this is their king's chapel. And um, there's stained glass at the top and the bottom. And we're not used to necessarily reading stained glass, but Here's how the stained glass kind of functions. Can we go to the next one? If you look, the top row of all of the stained glass are Old Testament stories. A different one, all through. The bottom row is a New Testament story or an expression, it's a vision of how Jesus lives out and redeems the story from the beginning. So if there's Jonah in the, in the, in the belly of the, the the fish, for three days, right? The one underneath will be Jesus in the tomb. And then it'll have an inscription or Bible passage or something. And this is one way that in a time when people weren't literate, you didn't have the printing press, you could go through the chapel, point to the top one and say, hey, you remember this story in the Old Testament? Here's how Jesus is present there. Remember this story? Here's how Jesus is present there. And so every image in the stained glass is meant to inform us, inform us to see God and see Jesus in these stories, in the world. Right? That artistic training is important. Let's go to the next one. This is again, the, it's a long, long chamber. I think there's, I want to say there's 20 on each side, so it ends up being quite robust. And this is an artistic way to engage the story of God, right? That God is present in these Old Testament uh, scriptures, that God's present in these worship psalms, and that that's not an end in itself. It invites us to pay attention and say, where is God present around us? How is Jesus present here? In these stories, in the story that I'm living this week, how is God there? The thing with stained glass is that stained glass is, you know, especially in the setting of a church or a chapel, it's something that you see from the inside. And so there's always a side that isn't as clean, right? Especially with the, the way that stained glass was made at that time. It's, you can see the seams on one side. So you have essentially your show side, and then you have the other side that has a little bit of the rough edges. In this setting, guess where the rough edges are? They're on the outside of the building. And so as you're going through, you see these beautiful images. But then, if you're on the outside looking in, all you see are colors, shapes, the writings in reverse. You see the smudging. You see the things that are holding the glass together, and it's a little bit cracked. What image is being presented in the stained glass? Who's in? Who's out? 
Who is this space for? Who is this space for? The temptation we have with stained glass is that they're designed to be icons. And icons are meant to pull us into the life of God. They're meant to help us reflect and see God in new ways. An icon isn't an end in itself. An icon points to something deeper. It points to something richer. The thing is, at times in the Christian faith, the icon of stained glass, the things that we're meant to look at, to venerate, to celebrate, and then look through, right? It is a window. It is through. We do look through it. Those icons have become idols. And an idol is something that doesn't pull us away from itself. It pulls us into itself. Icons press us out of themselves and out of ourselves. Idols draw them into themselves, and they draw us insular, into ourselves. You can't forget that the point of these windows, the point of these things are to teach us the story of God but then to also not lose sight of the world that is through the window, right? To lose sight of the thing, the creation outside. These stories, these images only matter. And they only make a difference in the world when they form us to go through, to press through. And so this kind of brings us to the way that this psalm and art and the reflections together speak to us. We are called to be icons of hope for the sake of the world. As we gather, grow, and go, we are called to be icons of hope for the sake of the world. Now, how might we do that? How might we do that in our going? How might we do that in the way we gather, in the way that we grow together? Might I invite us into the words of the psalmist as he finishes this psalm? I've rewritten, just to make it corporate, because this is a singular, uh, singular psalm, but just to incorporate the, the corporate language, the, the way that this psalm functions. I want to invite us, as we close, to reflect on how this psalm is calling out to God and giving us language to be able to pay attention, to be able to have a disposition of humility, and to be able to embody the call towards being an icon, an icon of hope for the sake of the world. If you would... Join me as we pray these words together. I'll read, the, um, I'll read the, the plain text, and then together corporately, let us pray these words of the psalmist in bold. So this would be starting at verse 169. Join me as we pray. May our cry come before you, Lord. Give us understanding according to your word. May our supplication come before you. Deliver us according to your promise. 
May our lips overflow with praise, for you teach us your decrees. May our tongues sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help us, for we have chosen your precepts. We long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives us delight. Let us live that we may praise you, and may your laws sustain us. Let's pause and reflect on this word. God, we pray you would give us grace to know you more. We pray that as we go into this new year, as we gather, as we grow, as we go, that you will cause us to pay attention to your presence in our world. We pray that you would give us the disposition of humility. We pray that we might live as living icons, things that point others to you, that reflect your life and don't become an end to themselves, but point to your truth, your hope, your salvation for the sake of the world. As we do this, may you shape us to live faithfully. We know that the Christian walk isn't a walk of perfection. It is a walk that we walk with you, the perfect one. And so even in our missteps, be with us, Lord. Holy Spirit, empower us to live well, to reflect you well in all of our relationships. We need your help. And so we come to you humbly. We come to you with an openness to how you work. And we pray with Christ by the power of the Spirit that you would make us your image. Let us continue to worship, friends. Let's continue this song.